You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you. Hey, happy Easter. Easter. I, I am so glad to see you. Welcome to Bethel Bible Church. If you are, uh, if you're visiting this morning, um, just want to say a special word of welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us. Um, we've been praying that, that uh, for you and hope that you um, connect with some folks today and, and uh, that you find this place, uh, just that you would make yourself at home here. We're glad you're here. I've got to say one kind of disclaimer because it appears that it's been a while uh, a, a few years since I've mentioned this because somebody asked me this morning, said, hey, well, gosh, um, why are you wearing a suit? Uh, and so if you're not here very often, uh, the only, so if you've only ever seen me in a suit, uh, then you've only ever been here on Easter, okay? Uh, I only wear one on Easter and I don't wear, so I'd say this, this is going to sound bad. I don't mean it bad. I don't, it's not for Jesus because he doesn't care what I wear. Um, it's for my grandmother who very much cared what I wear. Now, she's with the Lord right now, but I, when I was a young preacher, so she would call me. She loved the Lord. Listen, she loved the Lord. That, that woman loved the Lord um, and really cared about what preachers wore. And so she would call me on Easter, and before she'd ask me what I preached about, she'd ask me what I wore. And so I just, to make sure I didn't lie to her, uh, I'd tell her, Mima, I wore a suit, and uh, just tell her all about it. And I really hope she died thinking I always wore a suit, although I don't think she was that naive, probably. But anyways, uh, that's the reason I'll be in jeans next week. We'll make up for it uh, next week, all right? Hey, so here's what I want to do. So it's Easter morning, and it is um, the time where we remember. So with the history of the church, there, there are things that we have in common, part of our heritage as the church. And so for 2,000 years... At about this time in the spring, the church remembers and celebrates, uh, kind of commemorates uh, the first Easter morning, that morning when the disciples showed up at the tomb and found the grave empty. And so the church has, uh, for 2,000 years, set aside a day, they've called it Easter, and said, hey, listen, this is when we're going to celebrate this. Now, the truth is, we actually celebrate Easter every week. It's a part of the message that Jesus has risen, that the only hope we have is he died for our sins, laid in a grave for three days, and then rose from the dead. And so every week, that's a part of our message. Every week in some ways, every Sunday is an Easter. But this in particular, we remember with the church. And so what I want to do is I'm going to, um, I'm going to read the uh, gospel account of the resurrection. Um, remind us so we will hear how the, the gospel writers put it. I'm going to read Luke's account from Luke chapter 24, and then after that, we will um, look at God's Word and, and hopefully, uh, in a few moments, discuss and, and clarify why the resurrection is so important and so vital to us. So here, here's how it goes from Luke's account. Luke chapter 24 here is what he writes. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they'd prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were per perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day arise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna 
and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they didn't believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. It's the account of the resurrection from Luke's gospel. It's what we celebrate this morning. And I don't know if you heard it, but at the end of that, it says that Peter, so, so the women came, they told him, they, they didn't quite believe him, but then Peter says, man, I, I got to get up and go see this. And he runs to the tomb. And it says that he, he marveled at it. At the end of John's gospel, John's going to write the very similar account. The, John was actually there, and he and Peter rushed to the tomb, and, and, and John stops at the, at, the, at the door of the tomb while it's open, but Peter, he rushes right in. And it says this, that they looked at it, and they believed, I mean, meaning they believed it was empty. And then it says they went away not understanding what it meant. You know, um, later on, as Luke will record at the end of that chapter, when the disciples finally see Jesus, he, he appears to them, and, and, and what you find is that Luke records it this way. He says they were, they were frightened, and they were startled, and then he's, he makes this phrase, it's this great phrase. He says, they disbelieved from joy. They, they saw him. They knew that it was true. I mean, they knew he died. They knew that. They knew he was as dead as dead could be. He laid in a tomb for three days, but he's standing in front of them. And they, they disbelieved with joy. It's, 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 a, it's a way to say it was too good to be true. And what we find is that it's not really until after the resurrection, until Jesus is with them, he'll... He'll fix a meal. He'll eat with them. They'll, they'll, it, it, Jesus is in a body. He's in a, he's in a real body, a glorified body. And he's going to eat a meal with them. And he's going to open the Scriptures. He's going to open the Old Testaments. And he's going to say, hey, guys, this Bible of yours, this Old Testament, all the way through it, it was pointing to me. All the way through it, it was telling that I would die, be buried, and on the third day, rise. You know what's interesting is, is that's not the first time they'd heard that. See, the disciples, they'd, they'd walked with Jesus. They'd lived with Jesus for three years. And they followed him around. They'd seen him do miracles and heard him teach and had private moments with him. They, I mean, they had seen that they were ground zero to the Son of God in the flesh on earth. And at one point, towards the end of the ministry, uh, Jesus is going to head towards Jerusalem. He's taking his disciples to Jerusalem for the last time. And he says to them, he says, okay, guys, we've we got to stop here, and I've got to tell you what's going to happen. Are you listening? And they say, yeah, oh, of course we're listening. Of course we are. And he says, okay, we're going into Jerusalem. And when I get there, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be beaten. And I'm going to be to be mocked and scorned and then uh, handed over to death. I'll be nailed to a cross, raised up for everybody to see, and I'm going to die. I'm going to lay in a grave for three days, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And he says, did you get that? Says, oh, yeah, yeah, we got that, we got that. But the truth is that when it happened... They didn't understand. So I don't think they ever really believed that Jesus could actually rise from the dead. I think they'd gone home after the crucifixion. They'd huddled in, the, in their houses, and they were depressed and, 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 and sorrowful for all that they'd lost. What are we going to do now? And that life had come crashing in. It was really only in that moment when they see Jesus resurrected that they're able to fully understand it. Well, my question to you this morning, and, and it's a quick question, but one I'd like for you to consider is, how, how does the resurrection hit you? 
So you've come on uh, Easter morning, and, and there's a good chance that you can anticipate what it is we'll talk about this morning, that, that Jesus is risen from the grave. And in fact, maybe you've, you've heard that for a long time in your life. I mean, you, maybe you could give an Easter sermon. I, I hope you could if you've heard it for some time. But let me ask you, how long has it been since you've been kind of amazed by it? Kind of overwhelmed or caught off guard by the reality that, that a man died. And he came back to life. A, a glorified life, a better life, a, a new life. Well, that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to, um, I, I want to begin where, where we've been the last couple of times we've been together. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. And then from there, I want to go to the Old Testament and show you a story. But I'll tell you, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's interesting. Paul wrote it. He's writing it to the Corinthian church. And, and he, he, like the disciples, he had his own encounter. He went for a long period of time not believing, not, not, not believing that Jesus was who he said he was, certainly not believing that he'd risen from the dead until he encounters Jesus face to face. And his world came crashing down. And ultimately... In, the, in this letter to the Corinthians, he says this, For our sake, meaning Jesus, for, for our sake, meaning us, I mean, He, Jesus, uh, or God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though He didn't know any sin. He wasn't a sinner, but He was made to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul, in some ways, is summing up the entire ministry of Jesus from when he stepped out of eternity into our humanity through the womb of a teenager in Bethlehem. And he takes on the, the, the God of the universe, the eternal Son of God, takes on humanity without ever diminishing His deity, but takes humanity fully on. It is not a diminished humanity, it is full humanity. And He lives this life of perfection. And then at the end of it, what Paul is saying is that at the end, what happens is that God takes all the sin, all your sin, all my sin, sin. And He lays it upon the One. Jesus becomes the embodiment. He takes all the sin of the world to Himself. And He dies on a cross with it. And Paul says He does all of that <clears throat> so that we could become. So there was a purpose, and the purpose is, is that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Well, what, is, what is this righteousness of God? Well, why is that such a, a thing? I mean, why, why do we need this righteousness? What's so staggering about it that it would have caused Paul to fall to his knees. Well, I don't know what you know or what comes to your mind when you hear the word righteousness, but, but biblically, righteousness, it's a, it's a relational term. It has to do with relationship. And so righteousness means to be right with somebody, to be accepted by them. And so to help us understand exactly what I think Paul means, I want to go back to the Old Testament for just a moment and I want to look at a, at a story um, from a prophet named Zechariah. And Zechariah is writing at a time, so the nation of Israel, they'd been kicked out of their land, Bab the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, you know those stories, had come and gotten them, and they'd been in captivity for 70 years, and now they're back in the land. And Zechariah is a prophet, and he's writing. And Joshua is a high priest at the time, which means he's the guy that stands um, for the nation. He's the holy man of the nation. He's the one that, um, that the people are coming to to hear what God has to say. And so Zechariah has this vision, and I want you to hear, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn. I have it up here on the screen. But I want you to hear this vision. I want you to hear the scene that Zechariah sees. 
It starts this way in Zechariah 3. He writes, Then he showed me Joshua. He sees this vision. And he says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? What you have is you have a courtroom scene, and, and God the Father's presiding as the judge, and Joshua, the high priest, the holy one of the nation, is standing on trial. And the prosecuting attorney is none other than Satan himself. In fact, he's there accusing. The word Satan in the Hebrew, it means the accuser. That's what he does. And there for the defense, the one who's the advocate for the one on trial is Jesus. It says the angel of the Lord, we know that in the Old Testament to be the pre-incarnate Jesus. The Jesus before Jesus is born into the world in the New Testament. And there he is, and, and uh, Satan is accusing, and at some point in the trial, Jesus says, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. Silence. Here's the deal. You cannot accuse him anymore. There is no more condemnation that will come from you about him because I have taken the brand out of the fire. And what it means is literally this. That, that fire of condemnation, that fire of guilt, it's not going to burn anymore. I'm pulling it out and I'm going to set it aside. And it might look like it's going to burn for a little while and it might stay kind of raw and polluted on the end, but it will not burn anymore. I have taken it out of the fire. And then he goes on to say this, Now Joshua was standing before the angel, and he's clothed in filthy garments. And that's the whole issue right there. This is why he's on trial. He's standing before the judge. This one who's the high priest. This one who's supposed to represent the holiness of the nation. And he's standing there before God the Father. And what the text says is filthy garments. The word is actually, that's a very sanitized way to say it. it. It actually means mire and muck. It's the same thing. I mean, you might think of it this way. It was sewage stained from top to bottom. The kind of filth that you can't get out no matter how hard you try. The angel, this is Jesus, says to those who are standing before him, likely another host of angels are standing there, Jesus pronounces, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then I said, Zechariah writes, let, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. And in these few verses and in this vision is a courtroom scene. And the reality is, is that Joshua stands for all of his people. And the, and the garments that he's clothed in, this filth, it is the sin of the nation. It is the sin of the nation as a whole. It is the sin of the nation's individual, of the people individually. And we're not told the exact nature of the sin. Maybe it was idolatry. Maybe it was because they weren't following the law. Maybe, maybe there was some wickedness in the midst of the people. We're not given the details because I, I think the reality is, is that as we read this, the, re the reader is invited. We're, we're to read this and enter into the reality that we are Joshua's. That we stand there. And so when the text says filthy garments and there you are and you're standing and you're looking at the filth of your garment, you know what it is. No one has to tell you. 
You know what the stains are that you can't get out. See, what it's getting at is it's getting at the whole issue of righteousness. Remember, it's a relational word. And it means to be right with somebody, to be acceptable. And this, this, these filthy garments and this, this sin, this is, it's, it's getting across the fact that we ought to be deeply anxious about whether, the, in fact, we are not, are or are not acceptable. There's Joshua. There's you. There's me. And we're to feel the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment of standing there in the court in sewer-soaked garments before the one who is the king. When I was uh, younger, like middle school, high school, maybe even when I was younger than that, I used to have these recurring dreams. And they were dreams uh, like um, in the dream, what would happen is I would find myself at school. And all of a sudden I realized, that, so there I am at school, and I don't have anything on except my underwear. You, you, ever, you, you ever have this dream? Okay, this got embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but right? I mean, there's no place to go. There's no place to hide. There's nothing to cover yourself with. And you're realizing that in any moment, I am about to be exposed to everybody. And I can't cover myself. One writer says it this way. He says, um, he said, what's going on there is this deep need that we have. Then it works itself out in our dreams sometimes to be acceptable. And it also shows this deep insecurity about whether or not we are acceptable. There's nothing worse than to think of being underdressed to be looked at by everybody disapprovingly. I used to have this dream when I was in seminary, and I was, uh, it always went this way. It was at the end of the semester, and I realized all of a sudden that I had registered for a class that I hadn't gone to all semester long. <laughs> and I couldn't drop it, and there was nothing to do, and so I show up at the, at the thing to take the test, of course, which I failed, to which then they kicked me out of seminary, to which then I had to go home and tell my wife that I was a failure and got kicked out of seminary and had to show to my family and to all those people that had supported us that, you know what, I really am the imposter you always thought I was. This, 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 this reality that, you know what, at any moment everybody's going to find out that, that I really don't have any business being here. That, that if somehow they see through what I'm trying to project and what I'm trying to be and what I'm seemingly working for, that they would look and they would laugh. They would think, oh man, you're not anything. So we all have this deep inside. It is the place of our conscience where we know even if nobody else does, it's just a matter of time before the, the gig's up, right? It can come at any moment, those feelings, and you can work hard to prevent it. You, you know, you can watch a bunch of Netflix. You can drink a bunch of alcohol. You can binge on a lot of food or spend a lot of money. You can do all that you can to keep that at bay. But the reality is, it doesn't seem to go away, does it? Have you seen the Dove soap commercials? They uh, ran this campaign, started a couple years ago, and it was, the, uh, uh, it was, it was called uh, beautiful, uh, the Beautiful Campaign. That's all it was called. And they had the first commercial was called Choose Beautiful. And, and if you know the commercial I'm talking about, it opens up this way, and it is a woman's sort of shopping center. You know, so I'm thinking like Neiman Marcus or something fancy. I don't even know if that's fancy anymore. But a swank place that women will go to to buy their clothes. 
the, the kind of place that you get dressed up to go. And so there it is, and there are, uh, there at the entryway, there are two sets of doors. And one of the sets of doors, over the top of it, says, beautiful. And the other set of doors at the entrance, right there side by side, says average. And the ad, the commercial opens up with just a scene of that. And then what happens is they kind of fast time it and you see people and they're mingling. And all of a sudden you start seeing people coming with the purpose of heading in there. And the, and the women, they're, they're dressed to the nines. They look beautiful. And they're, they're all dolled up and ready to face the world. And what the brilliant thing about the campaign, about the filming, is how they capture the body language and the countenance of these women as it changes. And so they walk up to it, and you see a woman. She is dressed to the nines. She left her house thinking, man, this is it. I am beautiful. This is it. I mean, here I go. And yet she walks up to that entrance, and she stops dead in her tracks. And you can see it begin to wash over her. All the insecurity. All of a sudden, she's self-conscious, total dejection just washes over these women, and most of them end up walking through the average door. It's this imposter syndrome. Okay, I've been found out. I've been found out. Here I am. I, I, listen, the beautiful door, I know that's for other people, because deep down, I know which door is mine. See, when the Bible talks about this courtroom, it's not the only place that it talks about it. If you go all the way out to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, you know what it says? It says about Satan, it says about the one who is the enemy, that he is the accuser, and it says this, who accuses them day and night before God, that he constantly comes and says, hey, listen, God, don't you see Ross down there? I didn't know if you saw him or not. You see how filthy his garments are? You know, he showed up at the beginning of Job and said, hey, listen, Job doesn't really love you. He just loves the stuff you do for him. You take all that away and he's nothing. That's what he does. He accuses. And it says he does it day and night. And the reality is it doesn't really matter how many people you have around you in your life that think you're great. I mean, really great. Because in the back of your mind, you think, well, what about the people that don't think I'm great? Well, what about the people that don't think I'm acceptable? And see, the reason that we are so deeply anxious about that is because the reality is there really is a courtroom. And God really is the judge. And there really is a, a bar. There really is a measure. There really is something that for you to be acceptable to him and stand before him, you, you have to meet. And there really is an accuser there all the time, prosecuting attorney that says, look at what he did, look at what he did. Look, listen, you, you could start right now, live the rest of your life absolutely perfect, and you still wouldn't measure up because of all that has come before And we know this at the deepest level. Our conscience kind of always seems to be in tune with the frequency of that courtroom. There was a guy, Samuel Johnson, he was a 1755, he's a great writer, English writer. He wrote the Dictionary of the English Language. 1755 published it. It was the preeminent dictionary for 150 years. There was no, every, he was brilliant. Everybody knew he was brilliant. And he was tortured. In his heart, his mind, his conscience, when he was a little boy, his dad owned a little vegetable stand. 
And his dad was busy, and he had to do these things. And he said to Samuel, hey, Samuel, listen, it's do or die here for us. You've got to go to the vegetable stand. You have to sell the vegetables, and then you have to get the money back because we got to pay for the vegetables we bought. I mean, this is our livelihood. Samuel says, oh, Dad, absolutely I'll go, and he doesn't. And it turns out that was just the day that not receiving that money put them over the edge and put them out of business, and his dad died a pauper, never recovered from it, and neither did Samuel. He writes about that he had this secret discontent in him, and he walked to the spot one day. It was years later. He couldn't bring himself to go, but he finally does. He goes to the spot. It had been abandoned where the vegetable stand was, and he stands there for two hours in the rain looking for some way to deal with his guilt, trying to deal with this discontent inside of him, and he said it never went away. You see, that discontent, it'll catch you off guard. It's more than a memory. It's not just remembering those things. It's like the guilt comes fresh, and it's vivid, and the reason it does is because it's not just a memory. You have an accuser. who comes along at just the time and says, you know what? You think you're something, but don't you remember this? And here's the thing. The court's in session. The prosecution's constantly making its case against you. But the thing is, in this vision in Zechariah, Joshua is standing there and all his filth, and all the garments. And you know what? He does not say a word because he knows it's true. He has no word of defense for himself because the reality is he knows that that is true. The charges against him are true. He is unfit to stand before the Lord. He is unfit to worship Him. He is unfit to to be in any place that He is. And how can a holy one Accept the worship of such a sinner. Well, what's great is what Jesus does is he steps in and says, Put the robes on him. Satan, you be silent. I've taken away the power of sin and condemnation and guilt. I have set that, pulled that out of the fire, and set it right here. Now, Now somebody get him some pure vestments to wear. So they put on the robes and they get rid of his filthy garments. And what this is is a picture of what we would call the doctrine of justification by faith. But I want you to know, that means you're forgiven. It means that you are justified. It means that you get to stand right, acceptable, Joshua now gets to stand acceptable, clothed in what he was always meant to be clothed in and stand before God. But it means more than just the forgiveness of your sins. It means that. It means, listen, you're saved in the moment that you believe in Jesus. And it is more than being forgiven, though. Not only do your sins go to Jesus, but his righteousness goes to you, we find out later that the robes, they're the robes that only the high priest can wear. They're Jesus. And it's undeserved. And, and you know why it's undeserved? Because Joshua could do nothing. Scrub as he might for eternity can never get the stains out. What he needs is new garments. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that Jesus takes our garments puts them on himself, and clothes us in his. And it's absolutely undeserved. It's by grace. Because God loves you. Jesus poured his life out for you. Jesus traded with us. He took our filthy garments. He took our place, stepped into our guilt, 
He was made to be sin. He didn't know sin, but he was made to be sin so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. And not only did he take our place in judgment, but he also destroyed the accuser. See, here's the reality of our sin. Our sin will destroy us, but the hope of the resurrection is that Jesus defeats it. See, it's not that Jesus just died for our sin, but that he was raised to new life. Hebrews chapter 2, it says this, that Jesus in this destroyed the enemy. In Romans chapter 4, it says he died for our sin and was raised for our justification. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's going to say, hey, listen, all our eggs, they're in the basket of the resurrection. If Jesus merely died, if all he did was die, and all we had was a tombstone to go visit every year and say, well, that man died for our sins, we would be the most pitied people on the planet. Because our hope is not that he just died, but that he conquered death and was raised to new life. And turns and says, when physical death comes for you, and you're absent from the body, you'll be present with me. And then there will be a day when I return that you get a new body. You will be resurrected as well. And we'll be fit to live forever with him. You know why this is so important? is because when Jesus is resurrected, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. That's where he is, even at this moment, when we speak of him. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he's the one who was raised. He's at the right hand of the Father, who indeed this Jesus is interceding for us. And he begins that by saying, so who can condemn you? Who can? Paul writes at the end of Romans 7, he says, man, listen, I'm doing the things I don't want to do, the things I do want to do. I'm not doing those. I am a wretch. Who can help me? And he begins by saying in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, that's the hope of the resurrection because Jesus is our Savior. He is our King. And He is our moment-by-moment moment advocate to the Father. Hebrews says He purified you, not just on the outside, but at the place of your conscience. He advocates for you. And then I want to read Hebrews 10, 19-22, I want you to hear this. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we have confidence now to enter to the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus didn't only die, he lives. And he lives and makes intercession for you. See, I didn't understand it that way for a long time. I kind of thought how it went was that, you know, as a believer I trusted in Jesus and that he died for my sins. And then he rose again, and he was victorious, and so that, that made it sure. And then sure enough, it wasn't too long until I found <clears throat> that while my sin was forgiven, and the penalty of sin was taken away, the presence of sin, sin was still very real. And so I thought it worked this way, that Jesus makes intercession by saying, well, look, he, I know he sinned, but, you know, he believed in me, and, and 
you know, how are you not going to sin, you know, living on that planet? And so, um, look, to, to the father, he would say, have mercy on Ross. Just have mercy on him. And that, that he interceded on my behalf for the cause of mercy. That God would somehow once again find a way to forgive me from the things that I had done. And I saw it as though my garment, while I had been given and it was clean, I kept soiling it. But the reality is that's not what that means. What it means that Jesus makes intercession, what it means that we've been clothed with the pure vestments, what it means that he has taken our filthy rags, he wore them to the cross, he bore all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt, that he died our death. He died my death and lay dead for three days, but then rose from the dead. Here's what it means. It means he's conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the accuser. And what his intercession means, what his advocacy means is, is that when the accuser comes, Oh, when I come and I, I'm repentant and I say, Lord, Lord, please forgive me. I, can, I confess these sins. What Jesus asks for is not mercy. What he says is that, look, there is a standard, a righteous standard. And this one had fallen short. But you know what? I stepped in. And I paid it all satisfied from beginning to end. That there is no work left to do to make Ross clean. And so I don't ask for mercy, I ask for justice. Based upon the death I died and the resurrection I was raised to. That sin is forgiven. Its penalty is gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned any longer. You are the righteousness of God. It's, it's overwhelming. So you have to realize that's the foundation. Your salvation is by the sovereign grace of God and the perfect sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. And the Bible says how you connect to that is by believing it. By trusting Jesus or what he has done. Believing that his sacrifice satisfied all that you owe for the sin in your life. And that there's not anything you can do and there's not anything left for you to do except believe. Say, it's no longer my life I live. I, I'm living his life. He took my filthy rags and has clothed me in his perfection. You see, I think that's what the disciples came to understand as Jesus sits down at the meal, eating with them and opening the scriptures and saying, look, all along, all along the scripture was saying that I would die. I'd be buried in that death. But on the third day, I would rise. The trials ended. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's conquered the accuser. The trial is over and you have been set free, but more than set free, you've been loved. You are no longer on trial. You've been made a child of God, a son, a daughter of the King. The Bible says the moment that you say, you know what, believe that. I'm, I'm, 
I'm trusting in that. That alone. That by faith, by grace, through faith, Jesus saved me. That's salvation. No more condemnation. That's how you answer the accuser. He comes, says, well, what about all this? You say, look, everything about me is already known. It was already claimed 2,000 years ago. There's nothing you'll ever say that was not already known. I want to end with a bit from the, probably the most famous Easter sermon of all time. It was preached by a man named Chrysostom. He lived in the 4th century A.D. He was the bishop of Constantinople. His name was Chrysostom because that's translated golden mouth. He just had a way about him. He was charismatic and influential and powerful when he preached. And his most famous Easter sermon is called Easter Sermon. And the whole thing from beginning to end is only five and a half minutes long. Don't you wish he was here? <laughs> but I want to read you the last bit of it. Let us all enter into the joy of the Lord. First and last alike receive your award. Rich and poor, rejoice together. Sober and slothful, celebrate the day. You that have believed from the first hour, come. And you that have arrived in this very last hour, come. And don't be afraid of the reason for your delay. For the Lord is gracious and receives the last, even as the first. Rejoice Today, for the table is richly laden, feast royally on it. The calf is a fatted one. Let no one go away hungry. Partake, all of you, of the cup of faith. Enjoy all the riches of his goodness. Let no one grieve at his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn that he's fallen again and again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. And let no one fear death. For the death of our Savior has set us free. He destroyed it by enduring it. Death took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was thoroughly overwhelmed by what it could not see. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O oh, death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and your resurrection awaits to him be glory and power forever and ever amen you know i want to say to you this morning that listen Folks coming here on an Easter morning in all different kinds of ways. I don't know where you are. I would say this morning, though, if you have never come to the place where you said, you know what, I'm tired of cleaning my own garments. I can't get the stain out. I can't get my conscience to silence. I, 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 know, I know that courtroom scene. There's not anything I can do about it. The invitation today is to come. Come have your filthy rags thrown off and be clothed in the pure vestments of Jesus. And you do that by faith.
by trusting that He can, He is, and will always be your Savior. And for all of us, it may be a time this morning that you need somebody to pray with. Say, you know what? I hadn't, I hadn't been here in a long time. I mean, I don't mean being here. I've parked my car in the parking lot, but I hadn't, I hadn't been here. Come. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. May we all look to the cross and receive forgiveness and to the risen Savior seated at the right hand and know our advocacy. If you will, would you pray with me? Father, thanks for your word and for the astounding, overwhelming, undeserved grace that you offered to us. And the giving up of your eternal Son to die in our place. And then, Father, we thank you that He was raised from the dead and that He lives. Savior, King, Lord, Advocate. Father, that's what we celebrate this morning when we said He is risen. He is he's risen indeed. And Father, that's our hope. For, for those this morning that, that they don't know, Father, would you just ignite, would you grant them faith to look to Jesus and say, I believe, I do, I believe. And Father, in these moments, would they know, even in these moments, know what it is to be pure and clean and acceptable to you, clothed in the matchless grace and beauty of your Son, Jesus. This is, this is what we pray, and we pray the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.